a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today on The Brian Hyde Show. Just a quick reminder, you can always check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast, which if you haven't done it already, I'm going to recommend you do it. In fact, I'm going to give you some powerful incentive in just a day or two. I'm going to spill some beans here. I'll tell you, uh, we, we interviewed Spencer Worthington, who operates a uh, ammo manufacturing company down at St. George. And Spencer very generously is going to make available 500 rounds of 9mm ammo. Uh, this is like the Holy Grail, okay? This is this is very, very difficult to find, but uh, he's going to make it available, and uh, we're, we're going to do a giveaway. And I think uh, one of the ways we're going to do this is we're going to ask you, subscribe to the podcast, and uh, we'll pick a winner from those who have subscribed. Now, I've got details coming up, but I'm just going to drop that big pregnant hint so that uh, you know what's going on. also want to take a moment here to thank the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage as well as uh, Firesteel.com for being sponsors of this show. So this morning I got up, and as I normally do, I'm you know perusing all the information out there trying to find what would be relevant, what would be useful, not only for me but for my audience. And I came across this posting on Facebook by Isaac Morehouse, who is the founder of Praxis. And this just hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, it hit hard. And it was very simple. He just said, let me in, let me, let me let you in on a little secret. It never gets easier. Whatever you're doing, the more you succeed, the bigger the level of challenges. Another secret. You think you want it to get easier, but you'd be bored if it did. Now, I thought about that, and I'll tell you the reason why it hit me so hard is because yeah, I'm not trying to brag, and, and I'm not trying to be a victim here, but right now, I'm working harder than I have worked in my entire life. And, and I don't mean to complain like, oh, it's the, every day I'm off to the salt mines. I am more deeply engaged and doing more things and more things of substance. I, I have more irons in the fire and I'm doing more things that, that actually matter, at least to, to what I consider my purpose in life, than I've ever done before. And Isaac Morehouse is absolutely correct. It's hard. I thought there would come a point where, yeah, you know, it gets easier, you build up some momentum, and eventually you just coast, and that's how it goes. Not so. It's extremely difficult. and he's, but, but the thing he said is, if it did get easier, if you reached a point where it was like, yeah, now I can just kind of sit back on my laurels and just relax, it would be boring. Let me give you some details. This is, this is his essay. It's called You're Never Done Working Hard. And he says, one of my favorite stories is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Now, the plot involves residents of hell taking a day trip to heaven. And the interesting thing is that most of them don't realize they were in hell and don't like it when they experience heaven. In fact, most choose to go back to hell. 
Now, it's not a fire and brimstone hell, just a gray, bleak, lonely place where all the conversations and concerns are shallow. Heaven is even less like the common vision of clouds and harps. It is beautiful, but also terrifying, painful, and really, really hard. The grass and trees and water are literally hard to the touch for the visitors. Those who have been there for some time have become more substantial, and for them the blades of grass softly bend underfoot. But the visitors are such shadowy, weak, ghost-like beings that they can hardly handle the hardness of the more real, heavenly environs. It takes time, effort, and struggle to be able to enjoy the wonders of this heaven. In other words, heaven isn't easy or safe, but it's good. And here Isaac Morehouse points out, We often strive to find some imagined heaven, some sort of stasis where no conflict or struggle or hard work exist. And in so doing, we become disillusioned by the fact that we never get there. But he says, the thing is, I don't think we'd want to, we'd, we'd actually want it if we found it. It would look more like Lewis's hell than heaven. Safe, stagnant, dull. A place where we become less real and lose touch with what we want and who we are. He says, think of the times when you are genuinely fulfilled or in a state of flow. Often they involve hard work and mental or physical challenges. Even moments of apparent ease are really only enjoyable when they're earned and when they're not indefinite but part of a progression towards something greater still, like water stations in a marathon. He says, without vision, people perish. We need goals and challenges, not in order to get some reward or prize at the end or to reach a state of rest, but to enjoy the challenges while we're in them. If we achieve them, it's not so we can finally be done, but so that we can set our sights higher. Those in the story who had been in heaven for some time were working to gain more strength to scale the mountain, and then the next thing beyond it. Heaven was heaven, in full bloom and overpoweringly gorgeous, precisely because the growth never ceased. But he says, growth only happens with work. Then he says, don't put off enjoyment until you arrive at some imagined goal or end state. If you arrive there, it won't be that enjoyable. And if you don't, you'll have missed out on the opportunity to enjoy the process itself. This doesn't mean it's just about the journey. A journey without a destination isn't a journey. It is about the destination. But because arrival means the ability to set out for the next, still greater destination as a new traveler who's grown through the trials of the previous leg. Being fulfilled requires far more hard work than being dull, listless, or depressed. But it's worth it. That's profound stuff, and I expect nothing less from Isaac Morehouse. Sorry, Isaac, but you've set the bar high. My expectations of you are that uh, you, uh, you really have some great value to offer in these insights. And this, I just needed this kick in the seat of the pants today because I have found myself kind of grumbling. Man. Things are getting tougher. There's more being put on my shoulders, more responsibility, more challenges, things that are causing me to have to stretch. And I hate to admit that this is the kind of thing that I would ever complain about because the stuff that I'm involved with, the people that I am working with, the projects that I am blessed to be a part of are really great things. And there's purpose behind them. It's not just about, hey, you know, I'm going to figure out a way to pay for my Lamborghini or I'm going to, you know, make a name for myself and, you know, see my name in lights. 
It's about something much more important. It's about that, that sense of living with purpose or fulfilling the life mission. And, and what I have found is as I have put my focus on this in my own life, I encounter people who likewise have tapped into their own sense of purpose and life mission. And it's an amazing thing. We help each other. We, we create this, this uh, you know, energy that, that helps one another uh, move ahead. But I'll admit, I was naive enough to believe that uh, I really believe there comes a point where you're going to make it and it's going to get easy and the, the work becomes, you know, a pleasure. And it is to a degree, but it also gets harder. And I don't know why I didn't expect that. I, for some reason, I thought, well, once you hit the plateau up there, you know, you can, can rest. But, but there's always another peak to climb. And so as, as we move forward... Yes, I'll probably still complain a little bit. That's just part of the human condition, and it's just me venting. But I want to state for the record, I feel so blessed to have all the responsibilities and all the stresses and and challenges that are resting on my shoulders at this moment. I haven't always felt this way, and I appreciate Isaac Morehouse pointing out that it's it's good when we're doing hard things. And frankly, there, there is a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day when I lay down, when I collapse is more like it, and I drift off to sleep. I feel good. I feel like, you know, my time hasn't been wasted. Probably the biggest stress, at least at this point, is I just want to do justice to those things that, that I'm working on. Now, I don't know if you needed to hear this. I don't know if this is something that, uh, that even makes sense to you. But I appreciate you letting me share it with you, and I hope that you find it useful. And yes, there is a link in the show notes to Isaac's essay, You're Never Done Working Hard. You can find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back in a few moments. I've got a lot of great stuff I'm going to be sharing with you coming up in the next few moments. Also want to mention firesteel.com. Got a couple of days to act on this. The coupon code is good through tomorrow. September 3rd, you put in my name, Brian, with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N, when you make your purchase, whether it's a ferro rod or a magnesium fire starter or their gob spark, and you will have one of the high-quality fire starting implements to put in your preparedness kit, your 72-hour kit, your your car emergency kit. Go to their website, firesteel.com. Look at what they have to offer. Watch the videos. And when you decide, yep, that's what I need, Use my name at the checkout. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, got a great guest coming up uh, in the other hour of the program today. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Go to thebrianheidshow.com. You can subscribe if you're so inclined. If you find value in this program, you can also become a uh, donor. You can become a patron. And it's there's a link right there in the show notes that will help you make that happen. And thank you so much to those of you who have already chosen to do this. Every bit helps. It's, it's a wonderful blessing, and, and I'm just thankful that, uh, that I can provide something that, uh, that helps you. Let's talk about prosperity. 
You know, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I've, I keep a pretty close eye on our food supply. I've expressed concerns about, you know, big storms last year and again this year in, in the Midwest. The, the cattle herds that drowned in uh, Nebraska uh, a year ago last spring. Uh, I've been concerned at what we've seen with the food supply chain, you know, during the uh, COVID shutdowns. And I keep a close eye on our food supply only because I believe that it's a lot more fragile than most of us would would like to believe. In fact, most of us believe famine, well, that's something that only happens in poor, faraway countries. Well, I came across an article that, uh, this was published on the Foundation for Economic Education website, fee.org. This is from J.W. Rich. And the title is The Forgotten Horrors of Famine. Show Why Americans Should Not Take Prosperity for Granted. And it's, he says it's the curse of the economically prosperous that we often forget how we became prosperous in the first place. So let's talk about this. J.W. Rich says free markets have allowed the West to have unprecedented economic growth and send standards of living up and up year after year. We often forget that things we consider everyday items now, not even the richest among us, possessed 100 years ago. John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest men to ever live, possibly the richest. His adjusted net worth, while varying from source to source, was at least several hundred billion dollars once adjusted for inflation. However, John D. Rockefeller never once in his life owned a cell phone. Only toward the end of his life in the 1930s did television even start to come into existence, and it was vastly inferior to the TVs we know and enjoy today. Now, the Internet has completely changed our world, but... Poor Rockefeller never once in his life used an instant messenger application to talk to friends and family. You could probably look around and see numerous items and luxuries that didn't exist in his lifetime, keeping in mind that he died in 1936. Well, taking off to new heights means that some things are left behind, says J.W. Rich. Existential crises that threatened the survival of man hundreds of years ago are unknown to most of the developed world today. One of these forgotten horrors is famine. During a famine, not only do you lack food, but even your neighbors and friends are lacking. Fields are empty, pastures are empty, silos are empty, markets are empty, stomachs are empty. The situation could persist for several months at a time before more food would start coming in from the harvest. Until then, empty. Now, Cornelius will... Cornelius Walford, rather, wrote a book in 1879 titled Famines of the World, and it offers a brief but harrowing glimpse into what the past looked like. The beginning of the book gives us a list of every famine recorded prior to the book's publication, starting all the way back in 1708 B.C. And a brief description is provided with each entry into the list of famines. So an early record goes, 436, famine, thousands threw themselves into the Tiber. Most of the early entries are lacking in details, considering we often have limited information. But once you hit the Middle Ages, details start to emerge. So here are a few details. Ireland, 963 to 964, an intolerable famine, so that parents sold their children for food. England, 1073, famine, followed by mortality so fierce that the living could could take no care of the sick nor bury the dead. Ireland, 1586, human flesh is said to have been eaten. Now, J.W. Rich says this is not the only reference to cannibalism, sadly. 
It's reported in several entries. But one of the, he says this is one of the more depressing books that you could ever read, but it serves as a valuable reminder. He says, I only picked a few examples above, but there are hundreds of famines listed by Walford. And their great numbers understandable because for centuries, all it took was one bad harvest to effectively wreck a society for many years. Now, to our modern minds and modern comforts, it's hard to imagine that you could at any time be one bad harvest away from having your world thrown upside down. In our world, food is just there. Other than some occasional events like a natural disaster that clears off grocery store shelves, we never even think about if we can get food or not. So he says, to state the obvious, something has fundamentally changed from then to now. How did we get from the past reality of Walford's history to our present reality of comfort? This is why we want to study history. Obviously, we have more food now than we did then. Are we just planting more food? Yes, but the answer is much more complicated than that. In our modern age, we have transportation, infrastructure, technology, and equipment able to sustain vast numbers of people. And not only just for the process of growing the food itself, but for packaging, transportation, preservation, and everything in between that gets it from the land to the aisle in the store. It is this infrastructure and modern equipment that gives us the capacity to produce large amounts of food. So does this mean the solution to famine is just better technology? After all, we live in an age of technological miracles. We can do things today that seemed impossible a hundred years ago. Why can't technology just give us more food? But J.W. Rich says technology, however, is a fundamentally empty answer to this question. Technology in its purest form, knowledge, is simply theoretical. Having the blueprint to be able to build a house does not give you a house. What's necessary is the actual materials to build it. An increase in the amount of materials is what's really needed to help increase real wealth. How does this occur? What is necessary is what economists refer to as capital. Capital is used in production to help increase the productivity of labor. Having a hammer certainly increases one's productivity in nailing wood. The magic of capital is that with the same amount of labor, I can be more efficient. This means that with the same amount of labor, I can produce more goods with the same input than I could before. Capital is accumulated by saving. If I decide to spend all my time and labor on consumption of goods, or on consumption goods rather, then my labor will always yield the same amount of goods. However, if I, spend, if I decide to spend part of my labor on tools or equipment rather than on something I can directly consume, then the labor on consumer goods becomes more productive from that point on. Why was capital not being accumulated in eons past? Well, he says it certainly was, but the process of building up more and more capital was often frustrated by the lack of something important, property rights. If I spend time and energy to create more capital, but it's taken or destroyed because of property rights violations, what's the point? Why would I even go through the hassle if I can't enjoy the benefits of increased productivity? It's only when property rights are firmly established capital can begin to accumulate. Classical liberalism rose to predominance in the 18th and 19th centuries, leading to strong property rights and laissez-faire policies. Predictably, this led to an increase in capital stocks and a concomitant rise in the standard of living. These unprecedented increases in the standard of living is often referred to as the Industrial Revolution. 
He says, the riches enjoyed by us today are not permanent. If a regression in property rights occurs, then we will slowly start to regress back into the life of our ancestors. It's a curse of the economically prosperous that we often forget how we became so prosperous in the first place. Accumulation of capital under strong property rights gave us what we have today. And without it, we'd still be living in the past realities of famine, sickness, and also living just a few degrees from death. He says Americans would do well not to take this prosperity for granted. If we have a famine in sound economic thought, famines in our fields will come once more. That's a powerful essay. Again, look for it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I try pretty hard to steer clear of the general election circus. I really do. And yet, uh, you know, it's It's tough. It's pretty much everywhere. And once in a while, I come across something very interesting. And now I have been watching with a lot of interest as, as things have unfolded this year, only because uh, I have, have thought, you know, the uh, economy, it's not totally crashed, but it's not very healthy either. And typically that works against the incumbent. So I would think that uh, Donald Trump would have a fairly uphill battle as far as, uh, you know, retaining the White House in, in the election. However... The Democrats have not exactly been putting forth, uh, shall we say, a a very uh, compelling candidate. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, we have had a a really interesting, uh, we've had an interesting little drama play out before us in terms of, uh, look, you're hearing people say, well, Donald Trump didn't do enough soon enough, you know, about the pandemic. And yet, uh, at, the, at the risk of sounding like I'm giving him praise, which, in fact, I am praising what he, he did, he didn't impose a bunch of top-down federal mandates that, you know, one size fits all, everybody's going to do this. In other words, I think the best thing that Donald Trump has done regarding the pandemic is allowed federalism to play out, meaning the states, the governments that are closer to the people of the states, were the ones allowed to make those decisions. And as you've seen, some states were very, very strict, locked it down hard. Other states didn't lock down at all or took a gentler approach. This is as it should be. And the fact that uh, that Trump resisted the urge to, to put in all these mandates of, well, this is how it's going to be, I think says, uh, says a lot about his uh, leadership. And understanding that uh, the president does not have these unlimited powers to make everything happen. Now, I want to contrast that with uh, what uh, Joe Biden has attached himself to. And, and, and I'm going to preface this with, I, I don't want to sound, uh, I don't want to be rude, but uh, Joe Biden clearly is in a, in a very, very noticeable state of um, cognitive decline. The guy can barely complete a sentence. He, he has to be prompted with, with a script to, to just try to, to make the, the most basic speech. 
And this is not to, to comment on his character, okay? He's a politician, which to me is probably not the nicest thing I could say about a person, but um, he is is clearly not on top of his mental game. And given his age, this that's not a an indictment of, you know, I'm not trying to, to you know, throw mud at him. I'm just pointing out, I think it's I think it's shameless that the Democrats have put him up as their their guy. He's kind of like the Bob Dole of the Democratic Party. You remember Bob Dole back in 96? Dole Dole's an okay guy, but but there was really he was how did he put it? Uh, my friend Will Grigg put it. Bob Dole's about as interesting as a, a day of a uh, 3-day-old bowl of oatmeal that's been sitting on the table. Just sitting. It's just it's not that interesting. And the whole reason that Bob Dole was running is cuz it's Bob Dole's turn as Bob Dole would say. I think we kind of get that same sense from Biden. But there's also a little bit darker sense here as we've watched the violence unfold. It's been very clear that uh, many, if not most within the Democratic Party, either tacitly or in some cases very openly support what's been going on. And these are the same people who are, you know, back in 2016, Trump is going to destroy America. You just watch. He's going to destroy it. Well, hey, America is in the process of being destroyed. But I don't think that Donald Trump is the guy who is is fomenting that violence. It's the people who still, after four years, cannot accept the fact that he got elected. That's their problem, but holy cow, they are taking it out on the rest of us. Steve Saylor, writing for oons.com has a great column called Biden. You got a nice country here, Americans. Be a shame if something happened to it. And he starts with a tweet from Joe Biden that simply says, does anyone believe there will be less violence in America if Donald Trump is reelected? Think about what he just said there. And, and Steve Saylor says, as others have said, Biden comes across here like a gangster working a protection racket on a speakeasy. After all, the vast majority of politics-influenced violence in the U.S. since Memorial Day has been committed by people who are anti-Trump. And because Biden is the official, nominal, leader of anti-Trump forces, his threatening four more years of pillage, arson, and funeral shoot-ups, in case he loses the election under the Constitution, is pretty bad. Now, he says, on the other hand, Biden could take steps in September to reassure law-abiding voters that he would use the presidency to uphold law and order. It's not at all hard to believe that deep down, Joe prefers law and order to what's going on now. For example, right now he might use his person-to-person political skills to get the mayor of Portland to shut down the anarchy. That would be a positive step toward convincing voters he's on the side of the rule of law rather than mob mayhem. But the problem with that kind of strategy is that it would make clear the problem this summer has been... Democratic politicians. Lots of Democratic media personalities have been saying there is no rioting. The rioting is caused by Trump supporters. You racist white people deserve all the rioting. So Steve Saylor says if Biden temporarily strong arms the next generation of Democratic office holders into going along with Joe, well, that would speak well of Biden personally, but it may not reassure enough voters in a voting for a 77 year old candidate whose worldview is increasingly seen as out of date in the Democratic Party. Kind of an interesting conundrum, wouldn't you say? I don't know. <clears throat> you know, the idea that... Uh, 
I, I don't know if this election really is about, to, is this going to be law and order or not? I don't see anything that Trump has done as uh, necessarily exacerbating the situation. In fact, I think he has shown quite a bit of restraint. I will tell you that one of the worries that I have is that if Trump is elected, particularly if it is a landslide, something he can point to as a mandate of, look, the people want, you know, a law and order, you know, administration. I fear that the pendulum could swing hard in the direction of law and order, as in I think you would see a Republican-flavored authoritarianism at a level that you haven't seen yet. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think we want to avoid extremes on, on either end. I don't want the, uh, the anarchy or the, uh, <clears throat> the, the communist revolutionary behavior that the Democratic Party seems to be endorsing, nor do I want that to iron fist. I don't want a General Pinochet, you know, throwing people from helicopters in the name of law and order. Kind of feels like we're back in 2016. In, in some ways, in the sense that, okay, your choice is between bad and worse. What would you like? <laughs> Can we have another choice? I don't know. And, and by the way, if you're, if you're upset that I'm not showing, you know, more love and support for Trump, um, look, I'll concede the guy is certainly not the monster we were told that he was going to be. He's not perfect. And I don't, uh, I don't look to him to be the solution to a lot of the problems. But... I have to concede he has done far less damage than he than he likely could have, and in some ways has actually done some things that I'm like, that's that's impressive. Pardoning the Hammonds up in Oregon, I thought was actually a, a brilliant move. But I think uh, we, we have to keep in mind that politics is not going to solve the problem. And no matter who wins in November... There's going to be about half the country that is going to be adamant that this election was rigged or this election was somehow stolen, and I don't think we're going to see the unrest and the violence subside. Make of that what you will. I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to sound gloom and doom. I'm just telling you that I'm certainly not the only one who sees this. We've got some pretty interesting decisions ahead of us, and, and there are some things that we have control over, much of what's happening in the political realm, we don't. So for what it's worth, my take is sort out what you have influence over and what you can, can actually uh, take control over in your life and focus on those things. And don't spend quite as much time um, agonizing over whether or not uh, you're, you're going to be able to, you know, to, to sway the body politic. We're reaping the the we're reaping what's been sown over a lot of generations a lot of apathy a lot of ignorance a lot of dependency that's not going to go away because of one election but there are still things that you and I could be doing to better our position in life to be more self-reliant to be better neighbors better friends better to one another as far as members of our family maybe that's the kind of stuff we should be focusing on getting our own character in order so that to whatever comes next, whatever that may be, we're the kind of people that other people can look to for a solid example of character, leadership, confidence.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Take the time to visit thebrianhydeshow.com. There you will find the show notes with links to not only the articles that I share in the course of this program, but there's a lot of articles I don't get to. In fact, two of the ones that I shared yesterday, and I wanted to take a little bit of time just to give you a couple of excerpts. I didn't get time to talk about them on the air. But one was from John Miltimore. And this one had to do with the, the Solzhenitsyn quote that explains the mostly peaceful violence in America. We did touch on this yesterday about uh, how violence and falsehood are inextricably linked. And when you look at the CNN headline that uh, says, fiery but mostly peaceful protests after police shooting, with the reporter standing in front of flaming rubble, shots going off in the background, you know, the Babylon Bee, I think, actually had one of the better headlines from that. The uh, This is Fine Dog, hired to report on riots. <laughs> if you're into memes, you'll understand that one. If not, uh, maybe maybe not so much. The crazy thing here is that we have been able to see things with our own eyes, and yet the media, and I'm talking the corporate media, is telling us, no, 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 this is not what's happening. You know, there's no riots, there's there's no vandalism, there's no looting, there's no property damage. These are mostly peaceful events. How dare you try to conflate these uh, protesters with rioters? And then, and by the way, the alternate spin on that is uh, it's these rioters are actually the Boogaloo Boys, they're a bunch of angry white supremacists acting as if they are Antifa and going out there and fomenting trouble. All right, can we at least agree, though, that uh, there, is, there is violence and damage and arson and vandalism, etc.? There is a quote here from uh, Solzhenitsyn, and this is something that, uh, that John Miltimore brings up. He says, The great Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn once observed, by the way, no stranger to violence, once observed that violence is inextricably linked to falsehood. Miltimore says the Nobel Prize winning writer understood that while humans might be drawn to violence, they soon grow tired of it, which is why violence requires an ally. Falsehood. Here's how Solzhenitsyn put it. When violence intrudes into peaceful life, its face glows with self-confidence, as if it were carrying a banner and shouting, I am violence, run away, make way for me, I will crush you. But violence qu- quickly grows old, Solzhenitsyn wrote, and live not by lies. He said after only a few years, it loses confidence in itself, and in order to maintain a respectable face, it summons falsehood as its ally. Since violence can conceal itself with nothing except lies, and the lies can be maintained only by violence. Violence does not lay its paw on every shoulder every day. It demands from us only obedience to lies and daily participation in lies. End quote. And John Miltimore says, for this reason, societies that rely on coercion and political violence to achieve their ends will see truth wane. The violence must be concealed, and that requires deception, which in turn requires more violence. John Miltimore says, for months, many media and politicians refused to condemn the violence rising in America, which had the effect of aligning them with those committing the acts. 
and by doing so, they gained an unwelcome ally, falsehood. Solzhenitsyn observed, any man who has once had claimed violence as his method must inexorably choose falsehood as his principle. So John Miltimore says Americans are rightfully stunned by claims that torched, looted, and vandalized cities are the product of mostly peaceful products. But he says Alexander Solzhenitsyn would not be the least bit surprised. I guess that's one of the reasons why I do what I do. Is not that I have a corner on the market of truth, but I do my legit best to shine a light into the darkness and to to help provide the intellectual ammunition and philosophical ammunition that will allow other truth seekers to see through the smokescreen and the fog and the falsehood and the distortions that are being broadcast at us 24-7 by most of the corporate media as well as, you know, some private uh, uh, dispensers of falsehood. Again, it's not that I can't be wrong. I'm sure I am on some things. But the difference between me and them is I'm being upfront with you about, yes, I have an agenda. I am trying to build a cult of people who will think for themselves. And that's what I'm trying to brainwash you into doing. You know, just so we're clear on the matter. Hey, one other article that I didn't get a chance to touch on yesterday, but I did include in the show notes was an article from Stacy Rudin, Will You Choose Freedom? Just a couple of quick excerpts here that, that I thought were so timely. And it's, it's beautiful because she too quotes Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And by the way, if you don't have some Solzhenitsyn on your bookshelf, can I suggest that his words are, are worth a great deal right now simply because of what he went through, what he lived through, the actual tyranny he experienced imparted a wisdom to him that uh, is timeless. And I'm sad to say, I believe it's something that, that probably would, uh, would help us because of where we stand today. Right now we're in a time where uh, it's becoming more difficult to speak the truth, at least openly. You will be doxxed, you will be shouted down, you might be physically attacked depending on the truth you speak. And Stacey Rubin cites a, a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn from his 1978 speech he gave, I believe this was to the graduating class at Harvard, called The World Split Apart, in which he predicted an impending crisis in the Western world due to our excess of comfort and prosperity. By the way, Solzhenitsyn pulled no punches when he said this to the West. Quote, The Western world has lost its civil courage, both as a whole and separately. Such a decline in courage is particularly noticeable among the ruling groups and the intellectual elite, but he says, should one point out that from ancient times declining courage has been considered the beginning of the end? Even biology knows that habitual extreme safety and well-being are not advantageous for a living organism. Today, well-being in the life of Western society has begun to reveal its pernicious mask. The next war which does not have to be an atomic one, and I believe I do not believe it will, may well bury Western civilization forever. End quote, by the way. That, do you get what he's saying there? Listen to what the protesters out there burning buildings and beating people in the streets are talking about. They're talking about revolution. They're talking about a fundamental overthrow of everything that came before them. 
you don't have to look hard to understand they're talking about burying Western civilization. And Stacey Rubin points out, democracy lives or dies based on the character of the people that comprise it. In centuries past, those who fought to build this country learned lessons about the value of freedom the hard way. And they passed down their wisdom. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. But we didn't heed the warning. In fact, she says, we just willingly sacrificed the constitutional rights they fought for in order to hide from a virus with a 997 out of 1,000 survival rate. And she says, you know, we were many who were disquieted by the widespread elevation of fear into uh, virtue never said a word due to concern over looking bad or hoping someone else would step up to fight the absurd new moral construct, calling good, hardworking people murderers if they wouldn't sacrifice their entire lives and livelihoods for an indefinite period. She says it's not hard to see ourselves in Solzhenitsyn's observation. A fact which cannot be disputed is the weakening of human beings in the West, while in the East they are becoming firmer and stronger. We in the East, he said, have been through a spiritual training, producing stronger, deeper, and more interesting characters than those generally produced by standardized Western well-being. Stacy Rubin says, We got away with our lack of character-building challenges for quite a while, but when, in quotation marks, disaster struck, it laid us bare. We've met the enemy and he is us. We can't deny our puny, pathetic fear of suffering and dying, or worse, our fear of lack of control over dying. She says, we're used to having control. We're never forced to face our vulnerability because prosperity protects us. But now, that prosperity has become its own character development exercise. We will have to learn the hard way, just like our ancestors, that freedom places demands on us. The land of the free must also be the home of the brave. And my friend, to, to you and me, that means being brave enough to say what needs to be said. This is a marvelous essay, and again, you'll find it actually in the show notes from yesterday, September 1st. Can I recommend, find some time to sit down and, and read it. I think you'll find your time very well spent. And who knows, maybe it'll give you that little needed kick in the seat of the pants. Kind of like the one I got this morning when I was reading Isaac Morehouse's essay. Thanks again for joining us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Go to thebrianhydeshow.com, subscribe to the podcast, read the show notes, and join us again. This is The Brian Hyde Show.